Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, January 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. been a busy week, and we've had a fitting start to year two of the Trump administration. A government shutdown and reopening, blockbuster Russia revelations and developments, more wild tweets from the president, and then next week we have the State of the Union. Before we get started, a reminder. Subscribe to the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app. Rate us and write a review. So let's kick it off. Here to join us today are two of my favorite politicos, Andrew Rustuccia of the uh, White House reporting team. Hi, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming again. Uh, I thought maybe you might not uh, show up again after the grilling you got the first time. (laughs) And uh, also here is news editor Emily Stevenson, the pride of Wilmington, North Carolina. Greenville, North Carolina. Greenville, my bad. I'm sorry. In any case, thank you so much for being here today. So our first data point this week is 14. That's the number of days Congress has to negotiate a new government funding deal before the government shuts down again. Uh, Democrats voted Monday, as you know, to end a three-day shutdown after Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer eventually settled for an assurance uh, from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that the chamber would hold a vote on the immigration bill in the coming weeks. But there was no kumbaya moment there. Schumer, as as we all know, came under withering fire from his own party for the deal. President Trump and, and Republicans gloated over how they had rolled the Democrats and rubbed their face in it. Then Schumer comes out on Tuesday and informs the White House that a funding package for Trump's border wall that he had offered as part of the last-ditch negotiations on Friday was no longer on the table. Trump responds by saying if there's no wall, there's no action on uh, DACA, no resolution of the problem faced by undocumented immigrants. Uh, they were brought here as children. So all parties involved here have a long way to go in two weeks. And let, let me start, Andrew, with you. The question is, did Democrats give in too soon? Did they get rolled on this? Why did they cave? Can you, can you set, the state, set the scene for us a little sure. bit? So, I mean, if you talk to progressives, uh, there's a strong sense of of fury um, about um, what Chuck Schumer did. Um, you know, he he essentially, um, I mean, I, he he did he caved, right? I mean, he allowed the government to to reopen. Um, he settled for a promise from Mitch McConnell. Um, you you hear from lots of Democrats uh, in you know in in Congress and outside that you know M- McConnell's promises aren't good enough. You need you need more than that. Um, but you're also I think you're seeing two things happen. You're seeing this the public posturing. So you're seeing all the nasty comments back and forth between Chuck Schumer and the president. And then at the same time, you're having these actual real life negotiations that are happening behind the scenes. Uh, John Kelly stayed back from the Davos trip to specifically meet with members of Congress today and tomorrow, uh, Thursday and Friday. 
um, and uh, other members of his staff, Mark Short, the legislative, legislative affairs director, is doing the same. Um, and then you have President Trump coming in late last night with an impromptu gaggle with reporters, sort of throwing another uh, thing into the mix, which is that he is now open to the possibility of um, uh, dreamers having um, an eventual path to citizenship um, over 10 to 12 years. Um, and that's a big win for Democrats. So you had this this sort of uh, split screen moment over the last couple of days where you have on one, one side, uh, Chuck Schumer getting rolled and then coming back and being angry. And now the president president himself sort of angering members uh, of his own party with being open to a path to citizenship. I think the thing that we don't know about that, though, is that the president says a lot of things. And then a couple weeks later, he says something totally different. And so the White House said yesterday that they would come out with a proposal that they said would be bipartisan and that people on both houses of Congress could get on board with. And they said they're going to put forth this immigration framework on Monday. And that will be when we really can tell whether Democrats got something out of this shutdown. Because um, just because the president says something is going to be in there doesn't necessarily mean that it will be in there. And also, we don't know where they're going to go with the other things that Democrats had been um, pushing back on from the White House, which were the visa changes and the changes to um, how people can sponsor family members to come to this country. Um, And we just don't know what's going to be in that framework yet. And I think lawmakers are looking forward to seeing this this plan from the White House, too, because you've had Republicans and Democrats complaining that they just don't know. I mean, they know the broad strokes of where the where where the White House stands, um, those four principles that they've laid out, but they don't know exactly what the red lines are. What will the what, what will the White House accept and what won't they accept? I mean, I think um, that's partly because, uh, you know, the White House staff doesn't know where where president the president's going to be on any given day. Well, yeah, Schumer said negotiating with the president was like negotiating with Jello. Right. Well, that that raises a question that I have, which is the the question we always have: Do you take the what is the saying about the president? You're supposed to take him uh, seriously, not literally. Right. That, that's what right. the supporters say. So, what do you make then, Emily, of of last night's comments, uh, where the president you know bursts into this off the record meeting in the White House and and seems to go you know careening off in another direction with his remarks? It's just hard to know because. You know, last week Schumer thought or last week, the week before, I'm losing all track of time now. Um, Schumer thought that he had an agreement with the president or thought that the president was on board with a proposal that he'd made. And then he got a call from the White House that said, no, that doesn't work. It's too liberal. We can't do it. So the president and the president for a long time said that he wanted an immigration bill that would be done with love. He was never really clear about what that meant. So it's, you know, it's hard to tell based on him kind of spontaneously popping in and talking to reporters what he's really promising. Well, last night was President Softy, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, treating uh, DACA folks with love. I mean, Andrew, you spent a lot of time up there. What? So who? What is the real Donald Trump? Is it the hardliner who wants a border wall that you know says things that uh, you know really pick at all our racial scabs and you know has lots of people speculating about whether our president is a racist or is he really a softy at heart as it might have suggested last night? I don't think there is a real Donald Trump in some ways, right? I mean, he is ideologically, politically flexible in almost every way. He internalizes the the sort of perspective of the last person he talked to. I think one thing that is going to be something we should watch over the next few days when he gets back from the, his trip to Switzerland is um, who he meets with next, right? I mean, you have a, someone like Senator Tom Cotton, who's you know a real hardliner on these issues. If he's brought into the White House, the likelihood that the president's going to come out of that meeting still supporting a path to citizenship, I think, is a lot less, right? So... Um, you know, and this is a problem with every policy issue in this White House is is the president is 
flexible um and you know his critics would say flexible to a to a damaging degree for him politically and Schumer's such a fascinating politician here. I, w- I want to get back to him. I've, I've always been fascinated by him, the way he operates. And uh, so, you know, as we mentioned before, he's taken a ton of heat about this. People are protesting outside his house. People are calling him a, a traitor. And so, Emily, let me, let me ask you about the criticism he's received within his party. Do you get the feeling in any way that his leadership – I mean, there's lots of unrest there. Is his leadership at risk in any way or is it just he kind of has to hunker down and take a beating here? That, I hadn't gotten the sense that – his members were were planning to overthrow him or something at this point. I mean, I think you saw a lot of liberal activists really frustrated. They've been really vocal, you know, for the last year or more. Um, but I don't think we have any sense that, you know, his job is in question right now. And it feels to me like he's got an impossible job because, first of all, the House, many, you know, the House was really teeing off on him. But, you know, it's it's really unfair because he his uh, he has to protect his caucus in the Senate. Yet all these House members from safe Democratic districts that are like seventy five percent performing Obama districts are talking about him uh, being a traitor, but they're not dealing with the realities that he's dealing with. Right? I mean, he's got the twenty twenty caucus, meaning the presidential can- Democratic presidential candidates uh, in his caucus that want one thing and have to show something to the base. Then he's got this class of vulnerable uh, Senate Democrats that he has to protect on the other. I mean, Andrew, is it an impossible job? I mean, it is an impossible job. And it's not it's not uh, dissimilar from the job that Paul Ryan has to do or, you know, over in the House, right? I mean, you're, you're you know, you kind of can't please everybody. Um, it's, it, you know, obviously, senators ref, re- represent a, hu- a wider margin of uh, differing opinions than, than any one House district would. Um, but I think another thing to remember here is that, you know, Chuck Schumer and President Trump, uh, are not entirely different people, right? I mean, like they're they're different in lots of ways, but they're both New Yorkers. Um, they, you know, the president said last night that he actually likes Chuck Schumer. Um, he said something like, "We grew up together." I mean, literally, they didn't grow up together, but they grew up in the same sort of general region. Um, so I think person to person, they actually get along a lot more than you than the president gets along with McConnell or Ryan. Um, and that's the biggest fear for these conservatives, right, is that, you know, the president's going to walk into a room and strike some liberal progressive deal uh, when their backs are turned. So, Emily, you're in the cockpit uh, in our newsroom and, uh, you know, always forced to sort of think a couple steps ahead of the rest of us. What do you expect is going to happen over the next two weeks? I mean, what, what are you looking for? What mileposts and which direction do you think this goes and how does it play out over the next two weeks? Well, I think this question of whether Democrats can get a deal with the White House on immigration is going to be a really big deal for the rest of the year and for the midterms because we were talking about the liberal activists. And if they feel like Democrats are wishy-washy and they're not going to stick by their issues, they're not going to stick by the dreamers, then they're not going to show up and and volunteer in um, some of these really tough races. It's going to be hard to convince people to vote in um, numbers that you don't usually see in midterm years. Um, so this, this is a big test. This is a big opportunity for them to show that they can work with a president from a different party, but also that they are not going to give up on their principles. That raises an interesting point, um, because if you were to look at the polls, the polls were not that bad for on, on the shutdown and who people blamed. They were not terrible for Republicans as they were in the past. How, and so how much of uh, Schumer's calculus do you guys think was driven by this idea that we have this golden goose? It's called the 2018 midterm elections. We are going to clean up. There's – it's every – by every indication, there is a wave forming. Why uh, – 
why expend some of that capital now? Why even chance it? I mean, do you think that was part of the, the Schumer calculus? I mean, I, I think so, right? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that any that the you know Senate minority leader wouldn't be thinking about the impact of the midterms. Now, he would tell you he's focused totally on, pol- on policy, right? But um, this is this is going to have a huge effect, right? I mean, over time, depending on how if the, if the, if we get another shutdown, um, if if they are unable to get a deal, um, it's going to have a big effect. And I think in the White House. Um, Trump himself and his aides are aware that they need a deal too, right? I mean, they don't want to look like um, total partisans going into the election, particularly when it comes to independent voters who are going to be really a key key factor, right, in the midterms. Now for today's second segment, we are bringing in a Nerdcast favorite, Darren Samuelson, the senior reporter for Politico. Darren, how you doing? I'm a good nerd. Good to have you back. So our second data point is 270. That's 270. That's how many people, at the very least, who are connected to or are involved in the various Russia investigations, according to a Politico report drawn from a variety of sources, including congressional correspondence and testimony, interviews, public court filings, and media reports. Now, much of that list, much of the folks on that list hails from Trump world, but that list also includes foreign nationals, law enforcement members, uh, Democrats, prosecutors, lobbyists, and media folks, all of whom are connected to this morass in one way or another. Uh, So, Darren, since you were involved in putting this together and since you uh, live in this rabbit hole, the Russia investigation rabbit hole – Talk about some of the – well, I guess we'll start by – tell us a little bit about this list. How did you put it together? What resources did you need? Uh, Why why did you do it? And and talk about some of the common threads. Well, this was a reporting tool that started out as a database just on my computer that my editor sitting across from me, Emily, uh, encouraged us to start building – geez, many, many months ago just to keep track of who was the lawyer for who uh, as this thing began. And – it kept growing. The list kept growing, not necessarily of who were the lawyers, but who were the people we should be trying to figure out were the lawyers. And we started with like 30 or 40 obvious people from the campaign and from the Trump White House. And before we knew it, lots of names were going on there that were foreign to me, that are foreign to a lot of people. And it occurred to us, occurred to me as I was just starting to see lots of names in, in media stories, in letters that were being sent from the Hill to people asking for documents, asking, have you had any communications with this Russian or this person from uh, Trump's campaign orbit, that it would be really helpful. I know for me as a reporter, just it's, it's impossible to try and really keep your head around all of these people and what categories they fit in, whether they be people involved in the hacking and sort of what started this entire investigation, what started this entire scandal, so to speak, to people who are connected to sort of Russians and how they were trying to connect Donald Trump to Russians, allegedly, um, to a lot of the sort of things that have built and come out of this, whether it be the obstruction of justice investigation into President Trump or the Paul Manafort Rick Gates trial or the George Papadopoulos pleadings or the Michael Flynn guilty pleading. So you can kind of see there's just a myriad of people and we decided what better way to try and explain this than you know a graphical visual presentation uh, that looks a little bit like the Tetris game I've seen people commenting on on Twitter. And, you know, people have also noted that the 270 number is the same number of people or same number of votes you need for the Electoral College. Uh, coincidence is really that all that was. I mean, we we tried to be as exhaustive as we could, knowing we were going to leave people out. But, you know, this thing took three weeks to build 
uh, technologically to see up on your web on your web page and on your phone. Uh, just going through these names and then trying to very succinctly explain their connections and verify that there indeed were reasons why these people should be on here. We didn't get everybody. We've been, I've been, you should just see my email. How many people have been sending me messages saying, oh, you left this person out, you left that person out. I mean, we had some people on Twitter immediately upon publication of this uh, on Sunday night during the NFC Championship game going to town saying that we left 70, 80, 90, 100 people off. I got one email from someone with 120 more names that I didn't put in the story. I know, and I haven't had the time yet to really vet. And that's because there's so many hobbyists that, that pursue this. I, I know several people, you know, who aren't in in the media business at all. They sort of do this on their own. It's been... <laughs> it is a, uh, a cottage industry. We wrote. I did a long story on the uh, the, the the Trump amateur sleuths back in the summer of last year, just spotlighting and featuring a couple of them. Um, there's a guy out in California who's been like spending his his, his uh, excuse me his life savings just doing this day in and day out just on his own and, and sending out blasts to reporters and then there's there's a the owner of the ramen shop here in Washington D.C. who famously has his own whiteboard up on the wall I believe there um, who's examining these things so yeah there are a lot of people who are trying to pour over this and you know it was great I, I will tell you that as I as we publish this I have never written a Politico story with this much feedback from the general public commenting back to me saying, hey, great job. Thank you so much, math teachers and science teachers and just normal everyday people saying, you've really done a service to help us understand this uh, this very wide-ranging, uh, impossible-to-understand uh, saga. Yeah, I think it's really hard for people to figure out how to keep track of what's going on. I talked to somebody the other day who's like pretty up on the on the news is pretty involved in the news and was like, explain to me what this dossier is and where it came from and why we're supposed to care about it. And, you know, we we journalists talk about or people who cover the Russia investigation talk about that like it's sort of a fundamental thing that everyone knows about. But actually, this is really hard for people to keep track of and especially all these names. And let me give it a shameless plug first. You find this on the politico.com website, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, so let me ask you, who's on that list then? I mean, you named a few people, but uh, there's a, uh, I saw a Russian pop star on that list. Yeah, the Russian pop star, that's the Agarovs who um, – uh, Iman Agarov who uh, was part of the uh, Trump Tower meeting in June 2016 um, that uh, was the offer for the, uh, the dirt on Hillary Clinton. The offer came through the Agarovs who were tied to Donald Trump through the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Russia. Trump famously appeared in a music video um, at that uh, Moscow uh, event that you can click on uh, the link there and, and follow yourselves to the YouTube video of Trump uh, uh, and the uh, the Russian models or the world – excuse me, the, the Miss Universe c- contestants. Um, you know, we've got Ty Cobb up there. We have Michael Cohen, the Trump uh, attorney who has been on multiple fronts pulled into this investigation. This is just in the Trump world. We're talking 138 people that I found – in Trump world, and that includes people in the uh, the Trump organization, uh, 24 in the transition, 44 lawyers, 73 campaign officials, and this is – no way is this you know exhaustive, but this is at least 78 campaign officials who have in some way, shape or form been pulled in to the Russia probe, whether it be asking for documents, asking for documents about this person. They've been named high profile in media reports. They're likely to have been pulled in for interviews with Congress or Robert Mueller. Um, a lot of the stuff in the Robert Mueller world happens in a black box. So understand that like, you know, we were only able to get you so far in terms of who has been publicly acknowledged to be interviewed by Robert Mueller. But as we have been learning, you know, sometimes Robert Mueller interviews someone or the FBI interviews somebody and we don't know about it for 
10 months to a year after it happens. Michael Flynn is a classic example of that. So who's the most unlikely, random, unexpected character uh, that you've ran across? I mean, somebody – who comes to mind? You just were like, what? Who is this person? <laughs> uh, Kurt Weldon. Former congressman from Pennsylvania. Of course, it always gets back to Pennsylvania, and that is <laughs> my congressman from my district. I wasn't used even aware to of that one. No, I, I know you were rubbing that in. <laughs> <laughs> Here I've been good the whole time, not talking about the Eagles, not talking uh, about the Super Bowl, and you've got to bring. I'm not rooting for the Eagles in the Super Bowl because I do not like the New England Patriots, but that's totally besides the point. It's not. No, it's not. It's right on point. I'd love to go on about this, particularly when we're done recording. But okay, so Kurt Weldon, tell, tell me why the former congressman from Delaware County, uh, Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, is on this list. Kurt Weldon is on this list because he's a Russia expert. Um, he is a former congressman from Pennsylvania, as you pointed out. Um, it was weird. Kurt Weldon is one that I actually need to do a lot more work on. But I will tell you that Diane Feinstein, senator from California uh, on the Intelligence Committee, sent a letter to Cambridge Analytica in October two seven, 2017 and said, I want all communications you've had with – it was dozens of people. And Kurt Weldon's name is on the list. There have been a lot of bloggers that have taken that and run with it and trying to figure out exactly what Kurt Weldon did or why exactly. So he goes up here on uh, on our other list for at least uh, of interest to Congress. So many folks just are trying to figure out, like, how do you follow the Russia investigation? How do you uh, not get lost and get caught up in it all? And I have set up Google alerts for a bazillion names. And so, I mean, it, you know, sometimes I do have to hit the delete button and just take them all out. But, you know, every once in a while I will scroll through and, you know, putting a couple of names in your Google filter, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump Jr., some of the lawyers, Ty Cobb, uh, John Dowd, you're going to get every story that is probably being written about this. So that's one way that I have filtered things to sort of help keep abreast. Twitter kind of moves too quickly for me sometimes to even be aware of every story. And, you know, th there's just so many things moving. But in a, with a Google alert, another shout out to them, um, you do get a sort of sense of, of everything that is happening on a day-in, day-out basis. I mean, I got to give props to The New York Times and The Washington Post, The Associated Press, uh, Wall Street Journal have done tremendous reporting on this stuff. And a lot of the links in my chart here take you to stories that they have done, land, you know, groundbreaking stories that have moved this ball forward. Um, you know, those are the, the media sources that I've been going to. NBC has done, you know, some great work on this too. So um, I would give a shout out to all my media, you know, colleagues out there who have been covering this as well. And so obviously the, the uh, Mueller investigation is intended to be a black box. But what about uh, the, the congressional committees that are dealing with it? Is there anything on their websites? Do they ever publish anything? Hmm. Uh, is there anything useful? I will tell you that like as – I mean this is all in my inbox, all the letters from Dianne Feinstein. And I, I was keeping them, not quite realizing how important they would be until – I started to do this project. They don't actually have a very good resource, I think, uh, on the uh, Judiciary Committee to search the letters. Like, I mean, they're up there, but it you got to do a little bit of digging to find them up there. The House Intelligence Committee and the Senate, Senate Intelligence Committee, which are doing their investigations, have not been putting much publicly up on their websites. We do expect at some point in the spring reports from both of them. Uh, explaining what they found. Uh, there's going to be some fights. There's going to be some partisan uh, reports that will come out. We'll get a Democratic report and a Republican report from the House, I think. Um, we'll probably also get maybe a bipartisan report from the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, it's hard to say how much they're going to put into it, whether they really focus on pre pre preparations, excuse me, for, for safeguarding the 2018 midterms from foreign inf influence as opposed to maybe a look backwards. Hopefully, we'll get a look backwards from them. Um, and then Senate Judiciary at this point, which is the other committee doing its work, hard to tell where they're going. There's just – there's seemingly two streams going on here. You do have bipartisan work between Chuck Grassley 
and Diane Feinstein that seemingly they do want to reach some sort of consensus, but then you know they're also completely apart on some of the issues here and what's important. And um, you know Grassley's been going down the FBI route, questioning the FBI investig- FBI's role in the investigation. Feinstein, you know, releasing the uh, Glenn Simpson transcript a couple of weeks ago without uh, uh, making Grassley aware of it. And now there's another potential fight over the Don Jr. transcript, whether that gets put out publicly and does Diane Feinstein do that on her own or does she get Grassley's help? Grassley actually said today that they were leaning toward releasing those transcripts because they felt like it was kind of time to make some information public about the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016 when Don Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort and some of the other people involved with this met with um, a Russian attorney and a couple other Russian representatives um, that was when they supposedly offered um, offered dirt on Hillary Clinton to try and get this meeting. Um, so now it looks like the committee is going to make some of that information, the transcripts of those interviews, public so that we'll find out more about that. Andrew, obviously uh, the White House would find uh, Darren's uh, life's work here to connect the dots <laughs> appalling. And uh, <laughs> But how do they feel otherwise uh, about where things go, where things are going? I mean, I, the, the president just said yesterday, right, that he was going to – he was happy to, to take right. – you know, to, to testify under oath to Mueller. Where, where do things stand in the White House and where's their head now? I mean, I think that they're worried about the possibility of the president talking to uh, you know, Mueller, Mueller and his team. Um, you saw the president come out and say that he'd be willing to testify uh, to testify to, to speak to the to uh, the special counsel. And he spe- the the kind of big thing was he said he'd be willing to do it under oath, right? And you saw Ty Cobb, the White House lawyer, quickly sort of walk that back um, with a sort of vague statement saying that he'd be willing to talk, but but sort of walking back the under oath part. Of course, as Darren pointed out in an email to me mm-hmm. yesterday, it doesn't really matter if you're under oath. If you lie to an FBI agent, you've lied to an FBI agent. Right. I mean, I think, but I think the, the, the broader point, though, is that they're, that they, they're willing to talk, but they are willing to do so uh, under certain specific conditions. And, and what those might be, I think, are, are still up in the air. But I think, you know, the president is unpredictable. The pre- it's, it, it's, I mean, it's really... Uh, you know, who knows what he would say, you know, in this kind of environment. Um, so I think that the White House is a little bit on edge about that, um, particularly given the president's comments uh, on Thursday, Wednesday. Yeah, I, I, the only other thing I would add is, you know, the difference between under oath, I think the way he was answering that question maybe signifies that would be the grand jury. And Trump doesn't really have a say whether he's going before the grand jury or um, – uh, testifying before – excuse me, not testifying, just answering questions to the FBI um, and the Mueller team in a private interview. Sort of that's the that's the difference here. If you're in a grand jury situation, think back to Bill Clinton answering questions in the Paula Jones deposition where he's asked about Monica Lewinsky. That was a grand jury appearance, uh, but it was closed caption uh, videoed, transmitted to the D.C. courthouse from the White House. So they didn't bring actually President Clinton – you know, to the D.C. courthouse. They transmitted it. But uh, they were – he was asked questions under oath. Uh, there was a lawyer who was allowed in the room. Typically in a grand jury situation, you're not allowed to have your lawyer next to you. But that was negotiated back in the Clinton uh, days with Ken Starr's people. A lot of this would be subject to negotiation for for Trump if he does and, and how he gets uh, brought in for questioning unless, you know, the Trump people are resistant and fight and then Mueller can say – you know, sorry, President Trump, we want you. We want you actually to motorcade up here to the D.C. courthouse. We want you to answer questions under oath. No lawyer in the room. I'm sure that is not what uh, Ty Cobb and John Dowd and Jay Sekulow would like. They would prefer they're, – they're trying to get written questions um, as the, op- the other option here uh, submitted, which 
I have a hard time believing Mueller is going to agree to that. Written questions have been done in the past. Uh, famously in uh, Iran-Contra, Ronald Reagan answered written questions. But he wasn't a – I don't think he was a target of that investigation so much. He was a witness um, in that investigation. Um, here I think the president is certainly a target or at least a subject with respect to the obstruction of justice questions. And so that's why he's going to be questioned. Uh, you can imagine a whole host of other things and, and it's a matter of whether it happens uh, quote-unquote under oath in a grand jury or – in the room with FBI agents where, again, if Trump lies, uh, he could be hit for a perjury charge. Whether or not you can actually prosecute and indict a sitting president is a wide-open legal question. Some people would say it's settled and you can't do it. Uh, this is why they didn't indict Bill Clinton and why they recommended impeachment instead. So uh, that is also a question for, for um, Robert Mueller's lawyers to come and, and maybe explain on the Politico podcast. I invite them to come there and do it. <laughs> Andrew, I have a question for you actually beyond Trump. When this Mueller investigation first got started, you heard from a lot of people in the White House who were nervous that they were going to have to hire lawyers, that they were going to get hauled in for questioning. People were freaking out about who might be wearing a, a wire in the White House mm -hmm. or something. Um, and I feel like we're not hearing as much of that publicly anymore. When you talk to people, do you feel like they're still nervous about what the investigation could mean for them? Or do you feel like they're kind of living with it? I mean, now? absolutely. They're they're nervous. Um, but at the same time, I think if you're of someone in the White House and you have a job to do day, day to day, I mean, it's easy to sort of put blinders on and say, okay, I'm going to focus on my narrowly, you know, defined, you know, whatever it is, uh, role in this White House. So I think you're seeing um, a desire to sort of just push it out of their minds at this point um, and see and see what comes. Um, yeah, they've been instructed not to talk about it. Absolutely. In their yeah. own work environment. Right. Wow, what a workplace. <laughs> Just like Politico. <laughs> Our third and final data point is 84. That's the number of applause lines the president had in his first joint address to Congress last year. Now he'll give his first State of the Union to the nation on Tuesday. Now, in case you forgot, President Trump more or less stuck to a script in his speech last year, his joint address to Congress, and largely hit on the themes that propelled him to an election victory in November 2016. So, you know, the thing that I'll be looking for, at least, Andrew, is is does he follow the, the, the same lead? Does he stick to the script because of, you know, the relative success he had with that last year? Well, what do you anticipate and what are you hearing? I mean – my hunch, and you know that this president is unpredictable, so um, take that, take it with a grain of salt, is that he will actually stick to the script this time. Um, by all accounts, and talking to White House officials, he loved the sort of adulation he got in his joint address um, last year, um, and I think he wants to sort of replicate that. And I think he he's aware that people sort of see him as this sort of um, unpredictable predictable character and he likes surprising people. He likes coming in and saying, look, I could be pres presidential too. And if there's ever a moment to do it, it's his first State of the Union address. Now, I mean, there's another sort of element of this. So like, what will the script say, right? I mean, the scripts could still say things that are sort of unconventional um, outside of the general um, form of a State of, a union, of, of, a union, of the Union address. But um, I, I do think, I don't think you're going to get a scenario like a campaign style rally where he's up there like, going off scripts and just, you know, shouting out people in the crowd. Um, but, you know, I've been wrong before. So <laughs> That would be so much more fun. It would be more it fun. Would be it, would, it would be much more entertaining. I mean, I think one of the things to remember about the president is that he's an entertainer at heart and he knows which 
audience he's speaking to when he does these things. So when he does like an off the cuff rally kind of environment, he knows he's talking to people who love him or people who are watching him on CNN at home who are excited to hear what, you know, goofy joke he's going to tell or something. Um, but when he's doing like um, the State of the Union, the, the joint address to Congress last year, foreign the policy speeches. foreign policy speech, the Afghanistan speech, he knows he's talking to press critics who are going to write about whether he was presidential, um, whether he got his message across, et cetera. And it's just he knows which he can, he audience can read he wants. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's one of his great strengths. It only takes one line, though, that deviates from the State of the Union to totally take the conversation in a different place than what they intended to. Mm-hmm. Thinking of this wasn't even a, a line from an Obama speech, but when Joe Wilson famously screams out, you lie, like that's what we remember from that State of the Union. And Trump, even with the foreign policy speech, you know, went off script at various points and didn't say things that were in the paper. Same thing in that uh, speech in uh, the NATO speech, I believe, where he doesn't talk about the um, uh, some of the, you know, the Article 5, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. So while there might be something on the teleprompter in front of him, I would be prepared for him to, you know, he might spot out of the corner of his eye, Jeff Flake, and go in a totally different direction, just <laughs> right. as one example. And that's what we end up, you know, commanding the airwaves for weeks. And, and you know, also just remember, he's going to have in the back of his head the Russia investigation and everything that that is doing to politically his campaign. I wonder if he brings it up. If he doesn't, obviously, it's just a giant elephant in the room. But, you know, that is certain, certainly, I'm sure, weighing on him. And that is what probably the network anchors will switch to immediately upon the conclusion. And I've I've been talking to a few White House people in the last um, week or so, and it does seem like the kind of dual top line policy issues are going to be immigration and national security. And there's going to be um, quite a bit on also infrastructure, which is the president's sort of next legislative priority. And it faces huge hurdles um, in Congress. And he needs Democrats to cooperate on that. So I think there's going to be some guilting of Democrats there. Um, and But then I think that he's also going to do a little bit of a victory lap on the things that he feels he succeeded at. So he's going to talk a lot about the economy. He's going to talk a lot about deregulation. Um, and he's going to probably talk about, uh, you know, uh, his uh, tax bill. The tax bill and his judiciary picks as well, because those are, those are sort of the things that he's done. What is Do the- we know who he's planning on bringing as guests to the thing? Because, I mean, we've seen before where uh, Donald Trump's guests at events have kind of taken up all It'll the be, – yeah. think about that debate where he brought the women who had accused Bill Clinton. I'm told they're still sorting that out, but I was told to expect some immigration-oriented guests um, – potentially people related to sort of be, related to his message of beefing, beefing up border security. Um, and I'm sure there'll be many others. And maybe what Nancy Pelosi will bring Oprah and put her in the front row. Right. <laughs> right. What do we expect from the tone? Is this an, uh, an American carnage speech like mm. his inaugural or will it be completely spiking the football talking about uh, the myriad accomplishments and all the great, great things that the president has done. Well, I think there was a moment where Trump's advisors were telling him that they wanted it to be – they wanted him to strike a more bipartisan tone in the speech heading into the midterms. Um, that's been sort of a constant drumbeat from Trump's outside advisors. You need to sort of have a more bipartisan tone or you're going to get killed and the House is going to get killed. Um, but, you know, you saw – a shutdown. You saw um, all of these moments that sort of heightened the the partisan divide. So I think the likelihood that it's going to be solely bipartisan speech is sort of diminishing by the day. And we don't have. Uh, I mean, I'm really curious to see who get who does the Democratic response. Uh, and I don't think that's been announced right. Is that correct? 
Right. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is a real needle threading exercise. I mean, in the past, politicians have sort of, Hmm. you know, elbowed each other out to get that slot. Mm -hmm. But then in recent years, it's been not a springboard to success. Very hard to do well. Yeah. It's like a springboard to disaster. Yeah. Um, Rubio. And things go terribly wrong. But on the other hand, if you're an aspiring, ambitious Democrat, that is a slot you want. You you could see someone like Kamala Harris or, you know, someone like that doing it. But here's the problem. If you, you can't. You can't give it to one of the 2020 prospects without alienating the others. If you True. give it to Kamala Harris, you're alienating uh, one of the the other candidates, whether it's you know, prospects like Kirsten Gillibrand or, or someone else. So it's a tricky one. Maybe you give it to Oprah or, uh, or Barack Obama or someone like that to come in and – Imagine a Barack Obama rebuttal. <laughs> Maybe they'll wow. give it to a dreamer. That would that would be the thing that infuriates Trump more than anything, right? A, a Barack Obama rebuttal. <laughs> that would make his head explode. <laughs> like he would, would – yeah, it would totally throw him off through his whole speech, I bet. Mm-hmm. Andrew, are you expecting that uh, – you know, the common denominator of the successful speeches that we talked about earlier um, was discipline. Uh, he, there are rare moments where the president has shown some discipline uh, in these – like Darren mentioned the foreign policy or the United Nations speech. In those occasions, he has gotten you know, more praise than is customary for him and it's largely as a result of exercising an unusual degree of discipline. Is that a concern for the White House? Is this a, 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 uh, something the, his aides are talking to him about? Do you expect that it will be a more t- a tighter, more disciplined speech? I think it's always a concern for this White House and this president, uh, the issue of discipline. Um, but I think there's a sense in the White House that the president knows that this is a huge moment for him. And um, I don't think there's as much of a concern that he's going to, you know, tap dance up there or like go, you know, do, go totally off script. I think this will be a more disciplined speech. They've been working on it for, for weeks. They've been they've reached out to all the policy councils and all agencies for for um, uh, anecdotes and policy recommendations. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, past White Houses do, but that you don't necessarily expect from this White House. But they're doing it very much by the book so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested as well, I will say, to watch how the room responds. You know, this is a, a Congress that just, as, you, as Andrew just pointed out, just sent us into a shutdown for a couple of days. It'll be interesting to watch whether Democrats stand up at all and clap. I mean, we all, you know, everyone who's up there in the press chamber counts how many times you see people clapping and who's clapping. So whether, you know, the 2020 Democrats who are in the room, who are running for, thinking about running for president from Bernie Sanders, who we just published a story from Gabe uh, saying that, you know, he's being, bringing his counsel together to talk about that. So it'll be interesting to watch how Bernie reacts in the room, how Kamala Harris, how Gillibrand uh, react and, um, you know, that is just going to be the other subplot to this is Trump, you know, will be looking out at a room full of people who think that they could be president as well. And, you know, probably some Republicans on his side of the aisle who think that they should be up there just as much as uh, as Trump. Well, I'm interested to see um, what happens when he enters the, the, the chamber. You know, historically, you had members of Congress who stand on the sides. You have aides. You Elliot Engel waits Elliot all Engel. day. Exactly. Just to shake the president's hand and get that photo. But, you know, I don't think – uh, members like Engel or I think Sh- Sh- uh, Sheila Jackson Lee may be one of them. I don't think those Democrats are going to be clamoring to get a, uh, a photo or a handshake with the president this year. Uh, well, in any case, uh, thank you all so much for coming in today. I really enjoyed it. Emily, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks Andrew. for having us. Go Dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thank you to our listeners, our producers, Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator, Bill Cookman. And if you like the show and want to support the Nerdcast, subscribe, rate us, and write a review. We'll talk to you next week.